morning, good morning, good morning. We're back to close out a week of news. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston. And on Fridays, everybody on this podcast is moving ahead as fast as possible because it's time to go to the weekend. Let's begin. Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost has done something unprecedented regarding questions voters will face on the November ballot. Layla, what did he do? Why is it unusual? And what is his reason for doing it? Yost has has issued legal analyses on on state issue one, which would enshrine abortion rights in the state constitution, and state issue two, which is that initiated statute that would legalize recreational marijuana for people over 21 years old. And, and putting out this kind of analysis isn't something the AG's office would typically do. But Yo says that he wanted to offer it up because he sensed a lot of misunderstanding among the public regarding what these two measures would do and what their legal impact would be. He says he would do the same thing on any future ballot issues until he leaves office in 2026 because of term limits and, and also to run for governor. Basically, he paints these analyses as a public service to help voters understand understand what they're signing up for if they vote for these two. But of course, we know that Yost is opposed to abortion. So his analysis drew some criticism from issue one backers who say Yost is just using the power and credibility of his office to tip the scales here. Yeah. In my reading of them, yes, what we should point out, uh, Yost graciously had a meeting with our editorial board and, and one of our reporters to let us know this was coming so we were prepared for it. And if, if, he, he talked to us on background, which we, he said we could describe, so we're not violating the rules, about his thoughts on this, mm-hmm. uh, which I salute him for. And he said that he's doing this because everywhere he goes, people are confused by what this means. I even saw a note on Facebook the other day saying, hey, why is issue one back on the ballot? I thought we dealt with that mm, in hell, August. Yeah. And it's like, mm-hmm. wow, how do you not know what's going on? That's actually the thing I'm most yeah. worried about. Yeah. <laughs> That's not what this is about. No, it's not. But he, he says there's a lot of confusion. So I read them very carefully to see, is he putting his finger on his scale? He's opposed to both of these issues. With marijuana, I thought it was as even a description of what the results of this will be as mm-hmm. possible. Mm-hmm. I, you know, if you are have any questions about what this is about, because the statute that it creates is long and complicated, this is a great you know, primer. It's multiple pages. It's not the, you don't read it in three minutes, but it will inform you about what you're voting for. And I know a lot of people are confused on it. With abortion, I felt like the finger was on the scale a little bit because the the, the attitude is if you were good with Roe, the, the rules before Roe, this isn't that. It's going to be way more mm-hmm. liberal than that. And yeah. that this is going to get rid of laws that were passed that Ohio had in place. And the, the subtext of that is that they were probably happy with. If you were writing that from a slightly different perspective, you might say this removes all of the restrictions legislators have yeah. been putting on a woman's right to choose, a woman's right to hold dominion over her body so that that it's between the doctor and her. But he, he you know, he goes through each of the laws that will be invalidated. And mm-hmm. the the implication that I felt was this would be a bad thing. Um, yeah, he he says he said to us in our meeting that a lot of Ohioans uh, who are against abortion think that if issue one passes, that's fine because the heartbeat law would still be on the books, but issue one would nullify that law. 
And it would also nullify another state law that bans abortion 20 weeks into pregnancy, another law that bans doctors from performing abortions on fetuses where Down syndrome is detected, and a law that establishes a statutory 24-hour waiting period before getting an abortion. And frankly, you know, I mean, the way he paints it is that this is this would be terrible. Well, he doesn't, <laughs> for, though. He doesn't. The, he never puts a value judgment that clearly on it. I mean, we, we should point out, I mean, it's, but I, but I think it's there that, that if you're reading between the lines, that that's the implication. I do agree with you there. And I think that, you know, frankly, all of that is exactly why many people are, would support issue one because they want those laws to go away. And so <laughs> I'm not sure that his, uh, maybe his, his, uh, his analysis here will not have the effect that, that he thinks it will. Well, I just don't think most people are going to read it. Most people are not paying attention. I do think most people have made their minds up about abortion. And I don't think people are confused about the heartbeat bill. One of the reasons this is being pushed is people want to get exactly. rid of the heartbeat bill. It was a draconian measure that passed that most Ohioans don't agree with. Overall, I, I like the idea of somebody trying to take a sober look at the effect of the laws. And he's the elected top legal officer in the state. And there's nothing I would say that's inaccurate in here. It just felt like the, the abortion one was a little bit pushy. It, 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 it was interesting that, that he de debunked some of the issue one opponent's arguments that the constitutional amendment would mean that minors could get abortions without parental consent or that it would create this right for minors to undergo gender reassignment surgery. I, I, I applaud that he, that he yeah. you know, took on those issues and, and set that straight. I I did want to, can I jump yeah. in here for a second? Because um, I was also in that meeting with him. Uh, and I, you know, and he did say, and it's in the paper this morning, is that, you know, this is what he wants to do for like all constitutional ballot amendments. Now, Dave Yost is a principled man. I mean, I'm a Democrat. I voted for Yost. Um, I think he's a principled guy, but I just can't imagine these legal analyses in the hands of somebody like Texas AG Ken Paxton. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of a sticky. It, it is, but, but there's so much nonsense. We've talked about this before. There's so much histrionic nonsense being floated on both of these issues that trying to take that even-handed, sober approach, I think, is laudable. And he largely does it. I mean, if you read these and you accept that, okay, there's a little bit of finger on the scale, it is an accurate presentation of what's likely ahead in Ohio. I, You know, I did ask him, well, if you're doing this for the voters, have you thought about doing it for the lawmakers? Jerry Serino has that ridiculous college <laughs> bill where he wants to turn college campuses into training centers for the right. It's terrible, terrible law. It's going to cripple our education centers and professors and students won't come here. Uh, and it would be nice if Dave Yost took a look at that law and said, here's the ramifications of this one, because this is Looney Tunes. But he said there's a separation of powers and that that's not what he's aiming at, that what he is seeing is there's very much a participatory democracy forming here where people are taking measures into their own hands and he thinks that there should be explainers. It's an interesting development and people should read them and be fully informed and see what they think. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We are frequent critics of the Ohio legislature on this podcast for how often it goes for the culture wars instead of doing the people's business. But 
we have a case of where it actually did the people's business and, surprisingly, it worked. What staggering statistics did Governor Mike DeWine offer us on Thursday about the state's recent law to target distracted driving? Lisa. Yeah, Mike DeWine held a press conference yesterday, which was the end of the six-month grace period for this, you know, no texting, no talking law, which went into effect back in April 4th, but people were given six months to comply. So quoting data from the Ohio State Highway Patrol, we found that... Through September car crashes caused by distracted driving were 576. That's the lowest in six years. The highest point was 1,383 in the month of May of 2018. So, um, there were two, 1,255 fewer accidents this year through September. That's a decrease of 16%. Fatalities are down 25%. So DeWine, you know, was very grateful. He gave a shout out to drivers who chose to put their phones down, and he's encouraging others to uh, follow suit. I guess this worked because they have been pulling people over to give them warnings. That's the grace period. You wouldn't get cited, but they could still stop you and say something. And so... I didn't know anybody that got pulled over for this, but maybe in many circles, there are people who are talking about this. I'm just, I'm surprised that it dropped that much. And frankly, I have not noticed any reduction in distracted driving in my own driving. I life. haven't. Yeah, I haven't either. But now that they can pull it, pull you over for it as a primary offense, I think we might see a lot more citations and state troopers saying they're going to be out there looking for people distracted driving. They're focusing informant their efforts on uh, very busy highways, I-71 in Delaware County, I-77 in Summit County, I-70 in Guernsey County, and US-35 in Jackson County. So if you use any of those those roads, you know, you might want to put that phone down. I hope they also focus on people who drive tractor trailers because those are the ones that I see weaving way more than drivers. And it's frightening because those are gigantic vehicles. And when they veer into your lane, when you're driving down a highway, it is about as terrifying as it gets on the roadway. And it's got to be distracted driving. So I hope there's a focus on that as well. Interesting, interesting story. And again, all credit. The lawmakers did this. They, they're aiming to make the roads safer for us all. And apparently they have a good strategy. Way to go. Let's see more of that and less of the anti-transgender nonsense. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We all thought that email from First Energy a few months ago about getting gift cards as a lawsuit settlement, that was a scam. And it wasn't. Now we have the opposite with a gas utility. What should people know, Laura, about the checks they are getting in the mail purportedly from Columbia Gas? These are most likely fraud, and it would seem more legit than a First Energy online gift card from a spammy-sounding email address, and maybe that's where they got the idea. But some fraudster is impersonating Columbia Gas and sending out fake checks to both customers and non-customers, along with letters that falsely claim to be from the company's payment department. And these are up for about $3,800. And it's an attempt by a scammer to steal money and personal information from consumers. They can get your personal information and your bank account information if you cash that check. And I'm guessing it bounces anyway. I mean, that's a lot of money. This is not for 38 cents, which I feel like some of the First Energy gift cards are for. So if you get a, a a check from Columbia Guess, I would check that out. Yeah, I, it's just a brilliant scam by the scammers, right? Because they know that we all thought we were being scammed and we weren't. 
So the natural inclination when you get the paper check, which is a lot more credible than a gift card, would be, well, okay, so the utilities are no longer scamming me. This is real. I mean, I mean, it's it's sleazy, it's underhanded, it's unnerving, but you got to give them credit. It's pretty smart. Yeah, well, <laughs> it is pretty smart. That's obviously it's not right. And uh, I would report it to the company if you can. Just let them know that you were one of the ones that got it. All right. And don't cash it. because Don't cash it. Whatever you do. Opens the door. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Because of how Cleveland is laid out, we have traffic choke points all over town. And one of them goes under construction. When one of them goes under construction, standstills, scramblings for detours, and no small amount of anger follows. Why, Lisa, might we be looking at something like that starting Monday in Cleveland Heights? When I know Eastside residents like you and me, Chris, are probably cringing about this news, but starting on Monday the 9th, most lanes will close on Cedar Hill, which is official name is Cedar Glen Parkway, for a seven-week sanitary sewer replacement project. So it's going to go down from six lanes to just one lane in each direction until November 29th. Cleveland Heights officials are telling people to get ready now to consider alternative routes. They're suggesting Stokes Boulevard, North Park Boulevard, Mayfield, which goes through Little Italy or uh, Superior Avenue. And Cedar Hill is a major route that people use to access the Opportunity Corridor and from there to I-77 and and 490 um, and to get to University Circle. So it'll be interesting to see how how this goes. It'll be on Monday a nightmare. It'll eventually adjust out as people figure it out. But I imagine Fair Hill will be backed up forever. I imagine uh, Stokes will be bad. Uh, it's one of those. What, what throws me about this is they repa- this this road was in pretty bad shape a few years back, mm-hmm. and they repaved the whole thing. And it's in good shape still. I don't know if it was two, three years ago. Why wouldn't they have done this work then? They're going to tear <laughs> right. up the reconstruction and have to do it again. Where's the sense in that? It's it's crazy. Yeah, because I remember when they finally paved it, I'm like, hallelujah, I don't have to worry about those potholes in the outside lanes. But this, yeah, it's going to be quite a headache. And if a lot of people choose to go through Little Italy and Mayfield, that's going to be a huge traffic jam because those, as you know, those are very narrow streets. That's what they've done before. That's what they did last time. And it was it was pretty horrible. Yeah, I don't know what the answer is. At least they're re- they've reopened or were supposed to reopen Coventry yesterday. That's been under construction since spring, only open in one direction. That would have been a road people would want to use. But they've got construction all over town right now that is going they to do. cause difficulty with this. You've got construction on Taylor. You've got Cedar closed. You've got Euclid Heights closed. So I think people are going to have a very hard time on Monday, Tuesday, and it might start shaking out by the end of the week. Very poor communication about what's going on. It took us actually a little while to figure out what are you doing? Because you just repaved it. Uh, They were very poor in putting the word out. And you've seen a lot of complaints about that on all of the social media sites. Well, and they better have some decent detour signs. I can't stand, you know, a project that has terrible detour signs. I don't know where they're going to send you, though. If you get to the top of the hill, where do they push you to? It's it's just going to be so ugly. (laughs) I'm glad I don't have to drive in it. We'll see. We'll be monitoring it come Monday morning. And you are listening to Today in Ohio.
Destination Cleveland played a big hand in the popular script Cleveland signs that people throng to for photos, and now it is trying to bring that brand into some Cleveland neighborhoods in a dramatic way. Layla, how is the travel and tourism agency doing that? They've, they've launched a project that they're calling Murals Across the City, and it's exactly what it sounds like. Large-scale, whimsical works of art decorating the neighborhoods that really celebrate Cleveland and serve as awesome photo backdrops. There will be six of these in six neighborhoods by the time this is all finished. And so far, two murals have been approved and local artists artists are in the process of, of creating these murals on huge walls in the Detroit Shoreway and Slavic Village neighborhoods. The artists are getting between $14,000 and $20,000 uh, for the projects and they, and they have to follow some guidelines. For example, the artists were required to incorporate one of the tourism agency's phrases as the focal point of the work. Susan Glazer spoke to artist Lisa Quine, who is painting a mural that is 18 feet high by 26 feet wide on the side of an appliance warehouse on Lorraine Avenue. It features a colorful Cleveland skyline at the bottom, along with a a sliver of Lake Erie and a vibrant night sky and the phrase, the land where anything is possible. And she, she said she chose that phrase because it really speaks to her own life path here in Cleveland. The other mural by artist Kelly Schwab has a huge Luna moth at the base of her mural that people can kind of stand in front of and have that effect of the wings sprouting from their shoulders. And this mural is on the west side of Vic's Floral Shop on Fleet Avenue. And she also includes the Guardians of Traffic statues, the Detroit Superior Bridge, and and uh, flowering forget-me-nots in her in her art. We had a weird moment with this story because of the way the rules have changed so dramatically <laughs> on photo copyrights. Is that right? I wondered about yeah. that, but I wasn't a part of that conversation. Well, Do tell. the story was put together. The, the photos were in it. And a question came up from our social media team that was going to push it out there saying, hey, we've all had the training. We know outdoor murals are copyrighted and you can't run the images as the central image without permission of the artist. And Mike Norman, our entertainment manager, came back and said, well, the artists were there. So I would say that's permission. It's like, no, 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 no. We need written permission that we can put in a file so 20 years from now, some sleazy lawyer doesn't sue us for using it without rights. We got to make sure we document the rights now because of what's happening with photos we published before. So Susan Glazer reached out to the artists. They did send us back written permission and we were good to go. But it's such now, a different world today. It's interesting because that is would be a concern not just for us, but for anyone. And the right. point of these murals is supposed to be to, you know, to to spread the word about Cleveland, to be a marketing tool and for people to stand before this backdrop and take awesome pictures and probably spread them on social media. Has Destination Cleveland contemplated the uh, the copyright issues that you just described? My- because I would think they would need to get a some sort of in writing permanent release from these artists that that anybody can take pictures and disseminate them of this work. But isn't public art in the public no. domain? No, it is not. No. There's very clear case law. We we've had so much training on this. I can't tell you how much money we've had to pay because of lawyers coming after us for images we use that we we had permission for we just you know don't have the records to show it sometimes and and this is a key issue now that anything we run we have to have 
that permission. And the problem, Layla, is nobody else knows that. We know it because we're the deep-pocketed people that the lawyers sue. They probably haven't come after a destination Cleveland. Many of the agencies we deal with, when we call them and say, hey, we need the artist's permission, they'll say, well, we give you permission. And we say, no, that's not going to be enough. Mm-hmm. And they act like we're, we're talking in some foreign language. They, they just haven't heard this yet. They've, the lawyers will eventually go after the destination in Cleveland because there's money there. They can say, oh, you used the photo without rights. We're coming after you. But for us, it's front of mind. If regular people go out and take pictures of the murals and put them on Facebook, I doubt anybody will come after them because they're just small time and you really can't show damage. Uh, it's the media that they're coming after now. So, hmm. any I do wonder, though, has Destination Cleveland contemplated they the should. copyright issue? They should. They should get a global release because they commissioned this and they should make it public that you can use these any way you want. So that means that the, all these traffic signal boxes that have been painted by various artists, the, do they fall under the same... Yeah. Wow. Yeah, any any piece of art. Yeah, it's a very different world today. None of this applied or or was pushed back in the days of just newspapers where it was printed and gone. But it stays online and the artists find them eventually. And the thing is, right now it's not a problem. Ten years from now, it could be a problem. And then mm-hmm. you've got to have the records. So we have a whole record keeping system. Anyway, it's off point, but it was an interesting anecdote mm-hmm. related to these great murals. You're listening to Today in Ohio. At some point, you'd think these folks would be more strategic about how they spend their time and money. Laura, who has filed suit to challenge Ohio's new legislative maps and who decided not to? This is the national groups of Democrats. They filed the first challenge against these new redistricting legislative maps that were passed unanimously by the Ohio Redistricting Commission. So they had the approval of the Ohio Democrats. But the National Redistricting Action Fund, which who knew that existed, they called Ohio's new map among the most extreme gerrymanders in the nation. Now, this plan gives Republicans an advantage in 61 of 99 House districts, 23 of 33 Senate districts. And that's according to Keith Faber, the co-chair, a Republican. And the filing claims that along with all the other previous redistricting maps, the new plan doesn't meet the Ohio constitutional requirements that the number of legislative districts that favor Republicans and Democrats respectively must be proportioned with the average percent of votes in each statewide candidate during the past 10 years. So between 2014 and 2022, Republican and Democratic candidates averaged about 57% to 43% of the vote. So obviously 61 out of 99, that is more than 57%. The problem they face is that the Democrats did vote for it. So it's bipartisan. That's problem Mm -hmm. number one. Problem number two is they have a much more partisan Supreme Court than we had before. So this really is kind of an exercise in futility. And if they put all their money and energy into next year's ballot question, we would fix this permanently not in the short term and the money they're going to spend and the time they're going to invest in a lawsuit that likely will go nowhere is is probably better spent fixing it permanently but who decided not to sue this time around common cause ohio that's a left-leaning good government group and they decided it'd be better for them to spend their time and money on getting ohio voters to approve the constitutional amendment in 2024. And that would obviously overhaul the entire state redistricting process, get the politicians out, put 15 regular people in and have all sorts of rules. That 
is going to the ballot board next. So we'll see where it goes. But yeah, they're going to put their energy and their money there. I mean, it's not like these groups have unlimited funds. They're not, they're not, they're not PACs. Yeah, I, I, I just think this is going to be a big waste of money and time. They're not going to win, and we have we have a better goal. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Has the surge officially ended? Yesterday, off, off air, we were talking about how we all know people who've had the coronavirus in recent weeks. But after 10 straight weeks of rising numbers in Ohio, Lisa, how many weeks now have they been on the decline? Actually, this is the third straight week of declines in in the state of Ohio. The Ohio Department of Health weekly update that was released yesterday found that cases fell by 1,341. Um, down to 6,380 cases reported in the last week. It peaked back on September 14th at 9,690 cases. Deaths were up slightly, 44 deaths. Um, hospitalizations were up also at 220 more, 221 more than last week. And ICU admissions were up 10 over last week. So I wonder if this is a statistical blip. I mean, we're heading into like the thick of like COVID flu RSV season. So hopefully we can keep it down there, but I'm not real optimistic. I think people should still get vaccinated. Yeah, there was a very interesting survey I read uh, from overnight that showed how adamant most Republicans are about not getting vaccinated. And the Washington Post has been doing a story of a series over the past week about how red states are so much less healthy than blue states because of all of these efforts made to avoid public health. And this is a clear example that that you're, you, by by playing these games with vaccines, your your whole base is rejecting the idea of trying not to get the coronavirus. I hope the numbers keep going down. But man, I feel like I know lots of people who have been hit with it lately. And and hopefully vaccination numbers will go up. I don't know how Ohio compares nationally, but 7.6 million Ohioans have at least one vaccination. That's 68 and a half percent of the population age five and up. That's not great, but I don't know if we're any better than other states. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. If you didn't have a good reason to think Jim Jordan, his house speaker is terrible. Now you do. Donald Trump is endorsing him. What worse way can you go? <laughs> With him in the running for the House Speaker, though, we republished a story from a few years back to remind people of what the allegations were at OSU in that wrestling case and what Jordan had to say about them. Layla, what did we report then? Yeah, back in 2020, a former captain of Ohio State University's wrestling team had testified during a hearing in Columbus that Jordan knew wrestlers on his team on his team were being sexually abused by team doctor Richard Strauss when Jordan served as the team's assistant coach from 87 to 95. That accusation that Jordan knew about the abuse was made on the same day that Jordan was named chair of the House Judiciary Committee, coincidentally. Jordan has repeatedly insisted that he didn't know about the abuse, and he has been called a liar for that denial. In fact, former OSU wrestler Adam DiSabato has said that in 2018, Jordan called him crying after media had reported that his brother, Michael DiSabato, was, you know, had, they had quoted him saying Jordan knew about Strauss's abuse and did nothing to stop it. Adam DiSabato said that in that phone call with Jordan, Jordan begged him to go against his brother and deny the story. 
Undisputed is the fact that Strauss committed the abuse. Independent investigators released a report a few years ago concluding that Strauss abused at least 177 students during a 20-year period, with the largest number of them coming from the wrestling team. And Strauss has since taken his own life. But as I said, Jordan vehemently denies that he knew anything about the abuse while it was happening. Reporter Sabrina Eaton, who wrote the story from 2020, which we republished this week, as you said, uh, she she includes the testimonials of many people who say Jordan absolutely knew and did nothing. And then a whole bunch of other people who say Jordan was the most honest man they ever knew and that he would never turn a blind eye to something this this terrible. Yeah, the, the people who were around back then say that it was impossible not to know, that everybody knew. Uh, and people turned a blind eye to it. It's a different time, which would have been nice if that's what Jordan would have said. Look, this is decades ago. There were different attitudes. I wish we had acted on it. We certainly would act on it now. Uh, I think the belief by many that he's just denying it as a lie is what is troubling. I suspect that as he becomes more and more serious as a candidate for House Speaker, the rest of the nation will start reporting on this again. So that's one of the reasons we republished that story. Mm -hmm. It's on cleveland.com and you're listening to Today in Ohio. This weekend will feel like fall, a rainy, gloomy fall, but still fall. So Laura, let's talk about pumpkins. Who knew that a town in Ohio is renowned for its celebration of the Halloween gourd that a half million people visit during one weekend alone? Where and why? It's in Circleville. Have you ever been to Circleville? No. I no. I have not either. Um, and I, what I know is from like Ohio history class where it was built in a circle named after uh, and it was built around a Native American earthwork, which you think would be part of those UNESCO sites if they hadn't destroyed it in the mid 1800s when they went to a grid system. But anyway, pumpkins is that is the thing for Circleville. They're a year round flavor, all year phenomenon in Circleville. But it's still special in October. They have a four-day pumpkin show, which is this over-the-top extravaganza. Two parades daily. The world's largest pumpkin pie. It's 400 pounds and six feet in diameter. Plus pumpkin ice cream, pancakes, burgers, and more. And yes, they get a half a million people over four days. Although some of the people who live in Circleville tend to go on vacation during that weekend. Yeah, I, who, I just, it's one of those, I had no idea. And leave it to Susan Glazer to tell us something that, once again, we had no idea about. Uh, and it's year round. They're like, yeah. they're like pumpkin central all year long, not just now. It's just people go there now. So kind of a cool Ohio travel story if you're interested in. And if a- you need your pumpkin spice latte at Easter time, you, you know where to go. <laughs> <laughs> How far is that from from Cleveland? Do you know? It's probably about three hours. Yeah, that's a long drive just to see pumpkins. <laughs> You're listening to Today in Ohio. That closes our week. Thanks for being with us. I hope you come back Monday. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. We're out for the week. Mm